0: Hello and welcome to Serious Vintage. I'm Jeff Mose. I'm Nat Mose.
1: And I'm Josh Chappell.
0: Today, we'll be talking with the almost champion of Vintage Eternal Weekend and finding out how exactly those food recommendations from last time turned out.
2: Hi everyone. We're here with uh, Nam Q. Tran, the second-place finisher at the 2018 North America Vintage Finals, or Vintage Championship, rather. Hi. Yeah. Hi, Hi, Nam. Welcome to the show.
3: Oh, thanks for having me.
2: You're actually a guest that I have wanted to get on for a long time, if you know what I mean. Um, You could use the rim shot there. (laughs) <laughs> you're you're a guest that I've wanted to get on for a long time because you are a certainly a local workshops master, and you've made the top eight of Vintage Champs twice now with workshops. And in fact, going through our Team Serious Invitational all-time results, I think we've had like 12 Team Serious Invitationals, and you have made top eight at nine of them. <laughs> if you play a Team Series Invitational, you are almost a lock to make top eight. I think two of the ones that you didn't get top eight at, you weren't even present for. So that, you know, that was awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's
1: what I was going the 3 just wasn't at. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so Namtran, great at workshops and just generally cool to hang around with. So congratulations on making the finals at North America Vintage Champs 2018. Oh, thanks. You're a hero to all of us. You really are.
3: It's always fun to hang out with friends.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it is fun. Uh, Let's get into the meat of your run. I mean, you've been playing workshops forever. How did you come up with the build that you settled on?
3: For the last Team Series open, Raja had sent me a list that was a pretty stock Ravager list. And there was a couple of different sideboard options, so I decided to just give it a whirl for the walls and I went four and won that team series open uh Jerry was in first place, and he's pretty unstoppable with his paradoxical oath deck, but I was pretty happy with my performance
2: yeah, so what were the i mean what were the two sideboard options that you were trying to choose between? I know it uh in your top eight interview or one of their interstitial cards, they had a question about you what would you have changed about your deck? And you said that there were some sideboard cards you would have changed. What were the sideboards that you were
3: looking at and what did you think you should have changed? In typical fashion, I bring in a whole bunch of extra cards on me just in case I want to audible into something. For the TSO, sure. I was running uh, minus one Null Rod, minus one Chief of the Foundry, and I was wondering a Sky Sovereign Console's flagship and another Precursor Golem. But for Champs, I ultimately wanted another Null Rod and I ended up shaving a Precursor Golem for a Chief of the Foundry.
2: Okay, well, I mean, the Null Rod, I mean, I presume was against Paradoxical Outcome, and... Yes. And the Chief of the Foundry was for what, other aggro? Or workshops?
3: No, pretty much any time I want to board in Null Rod, I want to also board out cards that are bad with Null Rods, say, like, a 1-1 Ravager for two when a Null Rod's already in play.
2: Oh, okay, sure. So that's just an automatic boost for all of your guys, and doesn't get hit by your own Null Rods.
3: Yeah. I guess I was running okay. four Graf Diggers cage and two Tormod's crypts, but it seemed like a necessary evil. But I didn't encounter Dredge all day, so maybe I could have shaped a, a Tormod's crypt. But you have to respect Dredge at an event like Eternal Weekend.
2: Right. I mean, I expect a lot of your sideboard would have been planning for what you expected to face. So, I mean, if you had known in advance what you were going to face, you could have made better sideboard choices. So
3: yeah, hindsight's always twenty twenty.
2: Right, right. I know you had a pretty incredible run in the Swiss, right? Like you you were 2-0 in most of your matches?
3: Yeah, I was 8-0-2 on Friday during the Swiss. That landed me in third place, and I believe I lost three games all day that day. Nice.
1: That's true. And and you like did not have easy opponents like you beat Andy Markaton, you beat Joe Bogert, you beat Blaine Christensen. Like, I mean, these are people that have played vintage forever, right?
2: Yeah,
3: definitely wasn't an easy day.
2: You were also on stream most of the day because you'd beaten Marketon early on, right? So you were the king of the hill, having taken down the previous year's champ.
3: Yeah, apparently beating uh, Andrew Marketon made me king of the hill, which put me in the feature area a lot of the times. Though I think day one, my only screen match was against Blaine Christensen.
2: Oh, okay. I didn't realize. I guess that makes sense. (laughs) Did that affect your play at all?
3: Uh, No, not really. I wasn't sure if I was on camera or not. Some people told me my match against Andrew Markiton was the Time Spiral playback match, but I I didn't realize there was a camera above me and there wasn't. So it was just in the feature match area. Yeah. Oh, okay. I see. Having the extra table space is nice too. Yeah. I
2: bet that's actually a a luxury. (laughs) If, If only the rest of us could have such luxury. What did you face throughout the day? And, I mean, did every, did anything give you trouble?
3: Well, my first round I played against a Jeskai Delver, and I beat them 2-0. And the next round I 2-0 a Paradoxical Outcome. Then I, I played three blue-white landstill decks, uh, one in round three, one in round four. And that's where I got my first game loss. And then another in round six, uh, I lost a blue-white landstill the first time to a game two Energy Flux. Then the second time in round six, I lost to a uh, game two Moat. And then I played against Uba Stacks and I lost that first game. Then I beat a two-zero 0 White Eldrazi in round eight and then drew the last two rounds.
1: Wow. Yeah, like, what? so what were your actual, so, like, Moat, you're never going to beat, right? Like, we'll we'll write that one off. What was your round, back, four, round four? Yeah, come on. What well, was come the, on. That's how you beat Moat, right? Like, that's the idea? Yeah. Sure, it is the idea.
3: <laughs> I did get a hangar back walker up to five counters against the moat, but then a stonely silence shut me down and I couldn't win after that. Oh, okay. Round
1: four, what was your loss against Lance there? Game two, he had energy flux and I just couldn't deal with it. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. And then your Blaine Christensen Uba stacks, you lost game one?
3: Yeah, I lost game one. That, that match was on stream. He locked me out pretty good with a ensnaring bridge and Null Rod and Uba Mask and Bazaar. And he just smoke stacked all my permanents away.
2: Yeah, I imagine his list is actually pretty good against yours, especially if he can keep a Welder around, but I mean, he outdraws you and just locks you down, right?
3: Yeah, it sounded like he could have beaten me game three had he made different decisions, like something about a mock Sapphire and whether or not he should have ramped his Smokestack or not, but like in the heat of the moment, it's kind of hard to make those kinds of decisions, you know, and I oh, see sure. them flawlessly, Yeah. You know?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's difficult to predict what you're going to draw and necessarily know what your opponent has in hand I mean there's a lot of variables that as a player you can sort of guess at but you don't necessarily know for sure
3: yeah like I had him down to one life and I was holding a walking ballista in my hand and had a foundry inspector in play and a mistress factory in play but I, I didn't realize that I had the inspector I guess and I kept thinking like oh, if I draw a land I can play this uh, ballista for one and kill oh. one. And then I drew a mana crypt before he drew a rod.
2: yeah okay basically you were looking to play it for one and you could already play it for one like you, yeah. You just missed that? Yeah. yeah. Okay.
3: It was around seven. It was kind of late.
2: Yeah, magic is hard. Yeah, right? Yeah. Um, You faced landstill how many times? Three times?
3: Three times in the Swiss, yeah.
0: Wow. Was landstill that well represented, or did you just happen to hit it a lot?
3: There was a landstill that ended up top eighting, but uh, talking to other people, they said, like, oh, I played, like, three dredge all day, I played three workshops all day, so I guess it was just the luck of the draw for me.
2: Well, they must have all been doing well, though, because uh, you were playing them, essentially. Like, you were... All of you were at the top tables. I, I didn't face land still at all. I'm surprised.
1: Yeah, I mean, they weren't in the 5-5 five, five bracket.
2: Right. <laughs> well, ne- neither was
1: I. I wasn't in the 5-5 five, five bracket. Come on. <laughs> three six four. 6 4 I finished six three one. Okay, so you, you didn't have an easy top eight, right? But, like, I mean, you lost three games in the top yeah, eight. Yeah, I lost
3: three games during the top eight, yeah.
1: So I know like, we had dinner that night, and we were talking, and, and we knew at that point that you were playing against Survival, right? Yes. So, okay, Workshop Survival. You know, I was like, I don't know how I feel about this. I feel like this is going to be tough. And you're like, well, I've played against Survival, and like, it's been fine. And then we kind of got into testing the next day. So like, let's get there, right? Because like, I think this is one of the most interesting parts, going through all the iterations of testing, building the deck to test against, and... I mean, I don't know, like we had a a place to stay, plenty of room. The next day, like, Nam came over, we built the deck. I I don't know, what did we test for? Like, eight hours?
3: I don't think it was quite that long, but it was kind of long.
2: It was actually an impressive and interesting process that I was there for the beginning of. Like, from my perspective, you know, we ate dinner after the Swiss. And I think our big worry was the survival deck. It's relatively new and we knew you were going to be playing against it. Like you were definitely going to face that one past the first round of top eight, you know, things spread out and you have multiple options. So, Mm -hmm. but the survival decks is relatively new and you have played against, you know, blue decks, Paradoxical Outcome, Jeskai, whatever, and you've played against other Workshops countless times before but the survival deck was going to be you know something that you hadn't seen a lot of times and you seemed fairly confident in your matchup because you had played 10 games at the previous tso mm-hmm. and did well in those that was against uh, david lance who also did well at uh, eternal weekend in both vintage and legacy so i mean you were playing against a competent player and you know had at least gotten some reps in but it was very much a concerted effort among our group that you were going to play some games against survival and make sure that you knew the match inside and out. So that following day, that's what we did. You and Jerry Yang played for several hours.
1: It was a long time
3: because people asked me what of my experience in the survival matchup was before, and I was like, oh, I did play against a band survival at, at a TSO before, and we played two go- two games, and I beat him in two games. And after that, we played maybe about eight games more for fun, and I, and I won every game. So I was like, okay, I am feeling pretty good about right. the survival matchup. But when we proxied up the deck and tested it on Saturday, because everyone told me to grab my legacy play mat and drop. So, I mean, that was fine. But I tested against Jerry, and Jerry would have a lot of openers that basically had turn one, double Vengevine, double Hollow one on the play or draw. And I had to try and beat that every time, either being on the player draw myself, and that was definitely an interesting experience.
2: It was great because I was sitting next to Jerry, like we were there was a group of us helping Jerry play the survival deck, which he hadn't played before. So we were helping Jerry play the survival deck. You know, there were people watching your hand looking at different options and suggesting things.
0: I like that of all the people who could have been playing that deck, you (laughs) selected Jerry to force to play Magic Against Nom.
1: No, so Jerry was the only person that actively made the deck because (laughs) Um, he already had a vintage deck and he just turned all the fake cards backwards and wrote the new card names on the back.
3: Right. Gotcha. Yeah, everyone else was playing middle school.
2: And I mean, you know, Jerry is obviously a very competent player too. So Mm -hmm. it's like he was testing against someone good. The person who had played Survival, who was staying with us, was brass man like he had played a different version of the deck in the swiss and had done well so he like he had some knowledgeable commentary on experience but Jerry essentially was just piloting the deck and there were four people standing around making choices.
1: I mean, it's very interesting to play games that way because there were some play patterns where someone would make like, oh, I think I should do this. And then someone would say, no, that's wrong. Like you actually can do this, this and this. And like, it was really interesting to see and probably like the best way to play. Like I just was worried how helpful it actually was going to be.
2: Right. My thing was just that Jerry was drawing out of his mind. Like those were the best survival hands I've ever seen where it was like regularly putting 16 or 20 power into play on turn two. And, um, I was worried that we were just demoralizing you, Nom.
3: Yeah, it was a little bit demoralizing. Because at first when we were playing, like we would play the first couple turns. And like every like land drop I made and every creature I played, like everybody made a lot of commentary. Like, oh, well, you should have played this first instead. Because in th- this turn and this turn, you can expect this. And that will optimize this play later down the road. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. I didn't really think about it like that. And, like, my intuition with the deck, like doesn't really point me in that direction. And then Jerry having turned one 16 power, like every game also didn't help. But Jerry did kind of reinforce with me, like he was having these like really, really awesome draws. And I was actually drawing pretty poorly throughout the testing. And like, I was still pretty much in the match. And like some of those games are still winnable. So from his perspective,
2: yeah, you were keeping up.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So he was thinking if he drew a really good hand and I drew a really good hand, then I could still potentially still win. Versus where even if he draws a really good hand and I draw a mediocre hand, like I'm still competitive and I can still potentially win that game.
2: Right. I'm trying to think of specific examples that came up. Can you give us some specifics of what you learned on the workshop versus survival matchup? I mean, it, to me, it seemed like a lot of it was you needed to put creatures on board and then grow them. And they just started with grown creatures on the board.
3: Yeah, essentially. And then I played against some dredge matches where I have lock pieces and they have like turn two hollow ones or something like that. And from my perspective, you just need to stick a creature and then make it as big as you can, maybe like a 5-5 five, five or so, and st- just start like using your creatures to block their creatures and pick off their creatures, and eventually you'll be able to just overwhelm them with more creatures. And we were trying to come up okay. with a strategy to what was the best effect, and there was a lot of debate on whether or not Sphere Resistance was good against the deck. The first time I played David Lance at a TSO, like, I beat him game one with Spheres, but then games two and three, I sided them out. And later on, we talked about it, and he was like, oh, no, Spheres is, like, really good against the deck. And looking at Marshall's deck, which was my opponent in the top eight, he had 17 lands, four of which were Bizarre Bagdads, as well as, like, five Mox, right. the Lotus, four Noble Hierarch, and a death Deathrite Shaman. So in certain instances, it seemed like it would be correct to attack the mana. Uh, sure, sometimes you might have to play a Phyrexian Revoker and name Survival the Fittest, but depending on your hand and the board position and how things have developed, it might be correct to play Frexian Revoker on a Noble Hierarch or something like that. Oh,
2: okay, sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, the part of the fundament of their deck is being able to get Venge Vines into play, and that relies on them being able to cast two spells on a turn. So like mm-hmm. attacking their mana, taxing their mana prevents them from doing that, and at least keeps that big threat off the board, even if it's more difficult to keep hollow ones away.
3: Yeah, the big question on whether or not Sphere was good came up a lot in testing, and uh, eventually Jayco even ended up tagging in, taking over my spot, playing Shops, and he tested uh, keeping Spheres in the board and bringing in four graph stickers cages to see if sticker's cage shutting off Vengevine was mm. good enough. And that actually allowed me to sit on Jerry's side of the table and watch him play the deck to try and get a perspective on potential plays that the survival deck can make.
2: Oh, that's interesting, too. Yeah. Seeing it from the other side, then, were you able to give any insight, like, oh, yeah, if you have this sort of hand, like, this is going to hurt me more? I mean, did that become relevant? Or is that how helpful was it for you to see the other side of the board then?
3: It was pretty interesting because most of the time, the hands that I would see Jerry draw. I would just kind of look at it and be like, man, that doesn't really do much. But then yeah. after Jerry getting a lot of reps in, like he's just like, oh, actually this hand is insane. Then he would draw well, bizarre well, discard well. The cards would chain together to where he'd be able to put like lots of power on the board fairly quickly. And I think that's pretty much what right. the deck was designed to do.
2: Yeah, it's funny as a you know, long-time vintage player, for me to look at a survival list, like I can't comprehend it. Like I can look at blue lists or workshop lists and be like, okay, I see what's going on here. You know, here's a few unique things. This is going to be their usual game plan. But like looking at a survival list, like I can get sort of broad ideas, but there's way too many green cards and for me to parse, right? Like it's just, this doesn't make any sense.
1: Yeah. I mean, like survival, it doesn't exist without Hollow One, right? Like, so this is pretty much all Nat's right. fault. Because I think, like, <laughs> Nat worked at Wizard when Hollow One was printed. So, like, this is all Nat's fault.
2: Hollow One was in the can before I started there. That's all right, fair
3: fault. enough. It's on the record, <laughs> not Nat's fault.
2: Yeah, that's going to be the t-shirt for this episode.
3: <laughs> well, I guess it might have helped that I played a lot of uh, Legacy Survival. So, I played, like, Red, Green before. Sure. I played, like, Red, Green, Black. I played, like, Blue, Green, White with uh, Rocks, War, Monk, and, like, Loyal Retainers into Iona. So, I played a lot of different iterations of Survival before in Legacy. Oh, okay. Yeah.
2: Yeah, so that, I mean, that seems like it gives you a leg up as well, just being able to understand that potential and how they can get through their deck. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the list you played against on the surface, it looks pretty hateful towards workshops. I mean, it's got a bunch of nature's claims and energy fluxes and then, mm-hmm. uh, stony silence. Mm-hmm. It seems like their game plan, if they can't do the put 20 power creatures on the board, it seems like their game plan would be to drop a turn two energy flux. <laughs>
3: Yeah, there are a lot of games in testing where Jerry was able to stick in a turn one energy flux or turn two energy flux. And sometimes, depending on the hands and the creatures and your mana, you wouldn't be able to win that game. And sometimes, depending on the cards that you had, uh, you could easily be like, there are some games I, I beat turn one energy flux on the draw. There are some games that where Jacob beat turn one energy flux on the draw. So it just really depended.
2: Right. I guess a lot of that is just being able to find non-workshop mana and keep a creature around, or I guess you could also attack with Mishra's Factory, which, I mean, that seems slow, but if survival has sort of put everything into resolving an energy flux and doesn't have its threats, it doesn't have its engine, it doesn't have bizarre survival itself, like, it can be a slower game. Right.
3: Yeah. You basically just want to be able to grow a creature that's big enough to where it's worth paying two life to keep it around. But you're still attacking your opponent back and dealing them damage as well.
1: Sure. OK. So from the testing, you know, like we this testing, you had a plan for like, OK, here's my games two and three against survival. Here's how I'm going to sideboard. How did that actually play out in the real top eight? Did you sideboard the same way you thought you were going to sideboard? Or did you, like, make changes at the last
3: minute? We actually did a lot of testing, uh, Shots versus Survival, to the point where I actually kind of got, like, a headache. And I just kind of was just like, "Uh, I just can't play anymore. And to me, actually, (laughs) it seemed like the testing was actually pretty inconclusive. So when I went into the top eight Mm -hmm. match on Sunday, I kind of just trusted my gut and i basically just stuck with the same plan i had before or i think i ended up cutting like four steel overseers and the thorn of amethyst and i still just brought in the three precursor golems a spyglass and a nulron or i'm sorry not a I a dismember
2: that seems reasonable i think that's what you were doing for most of the testing that i saw too yeah which i mean makes sense <laughs> so did the uh, I mean, you said the the testing felt inconclusive. Did it help? I mean, did it wear you out? Would you rather have not done
3: it? I think it ended up being good because the like the first game against survival, I kept a hand with Workshop Inspector, Mox, Steel Overseer, and then the next turn I played Ravager Inspector, and I followed up with a Hangerback Walker. So Marshall had a pretty good start, and he actually ended up getting like two Vengevines and two Hollow Ones in play, or something along those lines, but realizing mm-hmm. that his deck has one basic forest and at the time he had forest bayou, mox ruby in play with with a survival i had a wasteland in play and i wastelanded the bayou and then i played another wasteland oh, yeah. and realizing that his only way to potentially beat me is if he fetches or plays tropical island because he already had a wonder in the yard and then he could potentially fly over oh, right. me. But since i knew that he only had the one basic force and all his other islands were non-basics and then I knew that Wasteland would keep me from getting killed by Wonder.
2: We were watching in the car on the drive back to Ohio and like Jerry and I were really psyched that you had that Wasteland in play. Like we were we were cheering the fact that you had played around Wonder seemingly so expertly and obviously you know that I guess part of that comes from testing and knowing the list in advance.
1: Yeah. So also I want to say that the middle school testing that was happening around you probably <laughs> helped you value Wonder higher than you otherwise
3: would have. Correct. There was a fully foil blue-green madness middle school deck being played around me, and that deck looked pretty sweet.
2: Yeah, that deck wins with wonder a lot, doesn't it?
3: Brought me back to the Odyssey standard days.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Did your opponent, did Marshall play as expected? I mean, like, was he playing similar lines to what you were testing
3: against? In talking with Marshall, it sounded like he played a lot of magic online. So he got a lot of reps in. I think he said Mm. he played like 20 leagues before champs, and a lot of people were just playing workshop decks in the leagues just to prepare for champs. So he got a lot of reps in with workshops. He said he felt pretty comfortable in the matchup. And from his perspective, and it's probably true, the major benefit was me being on the play because he always seemed to be a turn behind, as well as me having uh, critical cards at critical times, like the second wasteland for his Tropical Island. Otherwise, he could still potentially win game one. Or game two, I think he mulliganed and he kept like a double survival hand and me having a timely Phyrexian Revoker on his survival, as well as him being stuck on land, land, mox, survival. And I ended up playing a sphere, then I played another sphere, then I played a Phyrexian Revoker on his mox ruby while he was missing his land drops. Though so I know he was holding a Savannah in his hand and he was holding an Elvish Spear Guide. He just needed a couple more cards to be able to chain something together to try and beat me in game two.
2: Yeah, so I mean, it seems like he he played what he was given, and it sounds like the being
0: on the play actually helped a lot. Then, right?
1: Yeah, for sure. He should have had Jerry Yang draw his opening cards.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, but in a tournament, Jerry can draw. F- <laughs> True.
1: I was actually flying back to Denver while you were playing Survival, so I was like, oh, sh-, like I don't know what's gonna happen. And I landed, <laughs> and I'm like, oh man, Nam had beat Survival. I was like so excited. Yeah. So. <laughs> Now you get to play against Rich Shea, who, you know, vintage player for years, right? Like also playing shops. So like what are your thoughts going into that? Like talk about that
3: match a little bit.
2: Multiple vintage fine or multiple vintage top fates uh, champs Rich Shea. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I was looking forward to playing Rich because lifetime I was one and one against Rich and in the shops mirror it seems like it just comes down to how your cards pan out against how their cards pan out. Right. Kind of like earlier in the Swiss one I played against Andrew Markaton. like uh, I was on the play, he five, and I played Workshop Trinosphere, and it seemed like he had like a land lotus kind of hand, so he was kind of always behind in that game. And then in game two, played a Chalice for Zero and like a Potter keg, where I had an Inspector, then Inspector Ravager, then a Precursor Golem. So his hands didn't quite line up for the cards that I had in my hand, and that's kind of what I was expecting to happen in the matchup against Rich so game one against Rich, I had a pretty fast start, and he had a pretty good start, too. We both had a lot of creatures, but it seemed like I had more creatures, and I was able to kind of swing past his creatures.
2: Yeah, it seems like if one player has an aggro hand and the other one has a disruption hand, it, it seems like there's a big difference in how those end up playing out against each other. Like, you really have to figure out what's critical in on your side of the board.
3: Mm-hmm, exactly
2: the differences between your two lists were pretty small like you i think you were 74 in the main deck is that right
3: yeah the, our main decks were the same except for he was running a triskelion over a, a chief of the foundry which i was running
2: right and then in the board you had uh, you had Recursor golems and he had worm coil engines
3: yeah he also had some like two powder kegs and a ratchet bomb or the other way around but he had like three bombs in the sideboard as well
2: okay and the, I mean, those are a big deal because they can get rid of anything that costs X, which is your hanger back walkers and your walking ballistas. blocks. Ballistas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, we were watching in the car and um, I think we were pretty excited that you were going to be playing against him simply because, you know, you've played that matchup. I mean, he has too, obviously, but you've played the workshop matchup. So many times that you, Nam Tran aren't going to falter in that matchup.
3: Well, you never know. I guess I got lucky. Like, game two, I'm all to five, and I had, like, a workshop inspector hand, and Rich just had, like, way more dudes than I did. So I wasn't really going to win game two. Yeah. Then game three, I got pretty lucky. Like, I had my opener, and it was, like, workshop, mana crypt, precursor, golem, Phyrexian metamorph, Phyrexian metamorph. So I was like, well, I guess I'm going to go all yeah. in on turn one precursor and see if it gets me there or not.
2: That was an exciting game. We were cheering that you had you know, 18 power of guys on the board at the end of turn two. I I know that there was some criticism in the chat that they were saying you should have gotten rid of your original precursor golem to protect all of your tokens from what becomes mass removal. Do you have thoughts on that? I mean, it seemed wrong to me. Like, why not keep the extra three power on the board?
3: Yeah, I think since my hand had precursor golem metamorph metamorph, like I did go turn one precursor golem. I was wondering if Rich would have either a powder keg or like a Worm coil engine or his own metamorph or something like that. And I, I had a Ravager, so I mm-hmm. played the Ravager turn two. Then I played a metamorph copying my Precursor Golem turn two. And there is an argument to be made where I should have sacked my original Precursor Golem creatures to the Ravager to prevent Rich being able to destroy all of my Golem tokens and Precursors from his one dismember. But I guess from my perspective, right. since I had the Ravager out and I also had a Mistress Factory out, if he did have the dismember i could just sack everything to the ravager then if need be i could sack the ravager and pump up a factory and then try to attack rich with the factory and if rich isn't able to answer my my two precursor golems then either he plays a worm coil and i can copy it with my metamorph or i can just metamorph my precursor again and mm-hmm. just make an army of golems
2: right was he only playing one dismember
3: yeah we both had one dismember in our sideboard
2: yeah, I mean that it seems like such an edge case at that point for him to get his one dismember.
1: Yeah, you you don't play around that, right? Like you don't play around the one of dismember and the seventy five cards. Like you put your number eight on, and yeah. you just go to town.
3: And if you don't get there, you regroup. Well, I mean, it is game right. four of yeah. top four, so it might be valid to try not to get blown out about your against your opponent's one outer. But even talking <laughs> to Rich afterwards at old school, like he did say that it was he thinks it was correct too to not sacrifice the precursor golems. So I don't know. I guess it just ended up working out.
2: Yeah, I mean, the the threat seems good there to me. But obviously you came through that match okay, so Mm. you must have made an okay decision. And then in the finals, um, the finals was Paradoxical Outcome, which the particular version of that deck that you were facing seemed extra good against you simply because it was playing a Tendrils and could potentially win on turn one.
3: Yeah, I was looking at the other side of the top four, and it was uh, two Paradoxical Outcome decks. I believe it was Kyle versus Brian, and I know both lists had four Hercules Recalls between the main and the sideboard, and Kyle's Paradoxical Outcome list had a Blightsteel Colossus, where Brian's did not.
2: Yeah, so I guess actually either one would have been similar. The big difference would be that you can probably answer a Blightsteel a little bit easier than just losing straight up to tendrils
1: well and the biggest thing i think is like in that match between brian and kyle you have to root for kyle
3: right because if you get paired up against kyle in the finals you're on the play yeah
2: yeah Yeah. that was the big difference in that the other side there
3: yeah because brian was in first and i was in third so that meant that brian got to play in the finals
2: my feeling on Paradoxical versus Workshops is that Paradoxical seems like that's the deck that it picks on, is Workshops. You have so many answers, you can combo them out early. If you can hold on long enough, you can play Hercules and then combo them off. Like It seems like a rough pairing for you.
3: Yeah, game one didn't pan out so great. I think he Mulliganed and he led with Ancestral. Then I played a Workshop into a Sphere of Resistance, yeah. which he Force of Then he Time Walked and then untapped and killed me with Tendrils.
2: What was your plan? I mean, obviously you have Spheres, main deck, and then you have Null Rods in the board. I I mean, what else can you bring in?
3: Uh, I think that's pretty much all I brought in. I sided out some of my creatures that, again, aren't great when I have a Null Rod in play. So I brought in, like, the Precursors and the Chief of the Foundry, and I think I took out, like, the Steel Overseers and maybe Shaved, like, a Ravager, a Blista, a Hangerback, or something like that. Um, My Game 2 hand was interesting because I mulliganed to 6, and I thought it was kind of sketchy, but my 6 was, like, Wasteland as my only land, Black Lotus lodestone golem and null rod and a few other cards uh luckily i was able to stick the lodestone and then the next turn i was able to draw a land so i was able to play null rod and then i kind of just rode the lodestone like maybe another creature or two for the rest of the game
2: and lodestone's kind of a risky play against them because they have so many moxes including all mox opals right
3: yeah, Lotone doesn't effectively shut off their mana production, but it's still kind of a clock, and it's a little bit of disruption, but it's not the greatest. Yeah, it is a big clock.
2: It's a big creature, but it's sort of hard to hang your hat on, right? Yeah. You never know how that game's going to turn out. How did you feel going into the finals? Like, were you. Obviously, you must have been excited through the whole top eight, I assume.
3: Yeah, I was pretty excited. I, I had made top eight before in 2014, but I lost in the first round to Mark Taco playing Oath of Druids so i was excited to make the top eight and either way like i just wanted to come and just hang out with friends and play some (laughs) cards like i didn't actually expect to do well like i had a legacy deck built and i had an old school deck built and i just planned on you know just playing different tournaments throughout the weekend so obviously you just had fun yeah doing well was great but i didn't have any high expectations like i would have been fine losing to Marshall in the first round of top eight and then maybe i would have like ran over to old school or something like that so (laughs)
2: we would not have been fine with you losing in the time. No. <laughs>
3: th- no, I think the only reason that you didn't actually win is
1: there wasn't enough of us there watching you yeah. for like all of that positive energy. Otherwise you would have won. Oh, it's possible. And then someone would have had to like run around with the painting like Lou Christopher.
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> I mean, I suppose that's possible. There were some people that once I heard, they heard that I was in the finals, they actually like t- told people in old school, like, Hey, uh, just l- give me a loss the next round. Like I'm going to go to the convention center and I'll come back and, I think that worked out for some people. I think my buddy Raja, they actually ended yeah. up accidentally dropping him from old school, which is unfortunate. But at least I was glad to see that I had some friends there to watch me lose.
2: Yeah, that was my big disappointment of going home early was uh, not being able to to watch you in person. But as I said, we were watching
1: online. So was... Same. I agree with that. Because if you would have won, I would have been Luke Christopher. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there, there would have been streaking for sure, right?
3: Like, I would have been fine with it. My buddy Oliver had an old-school deck built on uh, a mono-black, and he was going to play that, but he decided to not play old-school and come watch me instead, and I would have been fine either way. If you wanted to go play, that's fine. If you want to come watch me, that's fine, but at least the entry fee for old-school went to yeah. a charity, so... Yeah.
2: How did game three go?
3: Uh, like, I mulliganed to six, and I think Brian kept his seven, and he led with, like, Mana crypt, Ruby, Opal, Top, And I played, like, Land, Mox, Sol Ring, Chalice, Zero, Sphere. Then he played Land, Go, I believe. And I played Ballista for three, Attack with Factory. Then he, Hercules, Recalled me, and then Untapped and Killed me with Tendrils. And I did talk to Brian afterwards. Like, there was some debate with me on if I should play Chalice for two instead of Sphere. But he said that he had Topped and he had Hercules Recall on top of his deck. And he also had Force of Wool on his hand. So if I play Chalice for two, he Forces... So playing for Zero essentially bought me a turn, but it was pretty much a done deal that I was going to lose because he could just Hercules me and then untap and kill me with Tendrils.
2: Yeah, his setup in that game was pretty good. He had kind of everything against you.
3: Mm-hmm. So it was unfortunate, but I was glad yeah, to do was... that as well as I did.
2: Yeah, no, it was awesome. Like I said, it was awesome watching you and congratulations again on making top eight for the second time and making it all the way to the finals. I mean, like it's one thing to make top eight and then win two more rounds. Like that's that's still awesome.
3: Yeah, thanks. The, the deck was pretty good. I was 21-6 and six throughout the whole weekend, 10-1-2. Uh, My only loss was in the final, so I can't complain about that.
2: Yeah, that's pretty incredible. Yeah, that's good. Uh, and you, uh, we I guess we talked about it a little bit at the beginning, you, you still feel good about the deck? Like, you would have made a few sideboard changes based on sort of what you expected to face, but, I mean, all in all, nothing drastic?
3: Yeah, nothing drastic. I was kind of waiting to see about the last abandoned restricted list announcement about what kind of changes might or might not happen to vintage before i kind of locked myself into a deck like i was actually kind of convinced that i was going to play two card monty because uh, champ said two years ago i was like i don't want to play ravager shops i'm just going to play the workshop mirror all day and it's not going to be very fun so i played the ravager shops deck and i did play the workshop mirror kind of all day and uh, it was just another case of how your hands panned out against theirs. Like I would have a turn one precursor golem, and they would have turn one two worm coil engines or something like that, and it just would not work out for me. But I did end up playing right, two card right. Monty at SCG Con, and I went like one four drop or something like that. And the only match I won was against an oath oh. that milled himself because he oathed into Gristlebrand as the second last card. So ah. two card Monty didn't seem that appealing to me. But my buddy Oliver wanted to play yeah. burning oath paradoxical outcome like the Jira Yang list. For champs and i was uh-huh. debating on if i should let him use non-foil mana confluences versus foil and all of the other lands and monty so that kind of pushed me into the direction of playing ravager shots instead
2: i like that your deck choice was eventually decided by what can i lend my friend as far as uh, <laughs> foil versus non-foil mana confluences. if
1: this tells you anything about knob as a person <laughs>
2: Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, Nam is great. He will support his friends over himself and still makes top eight.
3: Well, I guess so. it ended up working out in my favor. I probably would have got blown out playing two-car Monty, so...
2: No doubt, no doubt.
3: <laughs> so so, what are
1: your thoughts on, like, sideboard changes for Paradoxical in the future? Because, it's like, the deck seems like such a dog to Paradoxical, and, like, you know, your opponents just have to, like... Okay, I'm going to draw one of my four of Hercules recalls, and you're probably not going to
3: chalice it too, but I can't force it well, right? Yeah, I'm not exactly sure. Null brooch. Null brooch. Oh, so good. I wonder if maybe <laughs> it correct now. to have like ratchet bombs <laughs> and uh, powder kegs and things like that, because being able to blow up their zero casting cost artifacts early might be pretty good, because that prevents them from having lots of cards to target with paradoxical outcome as well as, like, I guess that would make your Null Rods better against a few zero-drop artifacts or mana-producing artifacts that they're able to play. I'm not exactly sure, but I guess running Null Rod and Powder Keg is kind of not as synergistic as you'd like it to be, but it may be a necessary evil in that matchup. I'm not sure.
2: Yeah, it seems like a real bear. I know that Josh McCurley and I have talked about it, too, where it's like, that's the deck that you have to figure out how to beat, really, because your matchups against other normal blue decks are winnable like you have the tools to beat those more so than you do outcome mm. well anyway great run again did you have fun in pittsburgh
3: i did have fun in pittsburgh i don't think i got to see as many friends as i would have liked to though it was great like hanging out on saturday and testing and things like that and i don't think i actually got to have as many yang times or as lot as many drinks as i did last year which is kind of unfortunate i guess i definitely didn't have any malort
1: <laughs> let me let me step in here the yang time has officially ended and the Nom time has officially began.
3: Yeah. Uh, what is the Nom the time? The dawn of the Nom time. What is a Nom time comprised of? The same thing as the Yang time. Oh, so is this a Jaeger bomb but <laughs> it's called a Nom time instead? It is now. Yeah. I can't dethrone Jerry. Jerry lost the name.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Jerry is more than happy to no longer be called the Yang time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: we still got to have a good time and we all went out to Emporio on Saturday after the or on Friday, Friday. rather after the Friday. Swiss
3: yeah, that was a good time. Yeah, I thought that
2: was good. I hadn't been there before, but the meatballs were girthy and they had several different sauces that were good. What kind did you get, Nam?
3: I believe I got the garlic parmesan, which is what I got last year, but it was fine. Poutine was good. The beers were oh. good. The company was good. There were several Magic players at different tables throughout that restaurant, so that was nice to see.
2: Yeah, there were a bunch of groups of Magic players there, which, I mean. Yeah, they, we
1: saw the uh, So Many Insane plays. crowd was mm-hmm. there.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think I had these sliders, and I got three different kinds. And, you know, I don't remember which ones I got. So
1: you probably got the special.
2: The, yeah, the special was really good. That was a... The special was a Thanksgiving slider. Right. The meatball there was like a turkey meatball with cranberry and sage in it. Yep. That was a strong meatball.
1: And I don't remember the other ones. I think the other ones were like beef and pork or beef and chicken. Yeah, or... that's
2: right. I had, uh, I had pork with the arrabbiata sauce. I don't remember the chicken one I got. It was with the other semi-spicy sauce but yeah all of them were pretty good and they had a wide variety of beers available as well that was good -hmm. Everyone was right. That place was just the best place to go.
3: It was a highlight last year and this year for sure. Yeah.
2: And then, so to fuel you up for your testing, there were also (laughs) a bunch of McDonald's triple stacks acquired, which that was an
1: interesting experience as well. (laughs) Yeah. I I won't do the math on this, but I think it was around $75 of triple stacks.
2: Yeah. I owe money to someone for those triple stacks.
1: That's okay. I offered to pay people money and they didn't want it.
3: That's okay. Four of us walked Um, to the McDonald's and picked up the triple stacks and like two baskets of fries and like a random McRib and a random like egg sausage cheese McMuffin (laughs) or something like that. It was about $75, (laughs) but no, that's fine.
2: It wasn't a random McRib. I have never had a McRib until that weekend. (laughs) Totally random. (laughs) My plan was to combine the McRib and the triple stack into some unholy sandwich. Did you do so? Um, I didn't. I ate the rib and then I ate the triple stack. And I think that was the proper order. Agreed. How many triple stacks did you... We
3: ordered 12 triple stacks.
2: Yeah, I think there were 12, 12 triple stacks bought, and um, Brass Man had three of them. Which, <laughs> I didn't ask how that went, but I would have imagined it was probably questionable. Like, around three in the afternoon, I bet that was feeling like a mistake.
1: I mean, like, if if he is truly the brass man, he's probably fine. He's got the iron stomach. Yeah.
3: Well, we did four each of the three different kind of triple stacks because the triple stacks are the same, but they have different kind of breading. So one of them is, like, an English muffin bread, and then one of them is, like, a biscuit bread, and the other one is, like, a McGriddle bread.
2: Yeah. I had the McGriddle, and uh, I thought it was okay. It was... I'm, I'm still trying to figure out why they're called triple stacks and not double stacks.
3: Well, apparently it's a triple stack because it's triple the meat, because it's two sausage patties and bacon, with, as well as egg and cheese from McDonald's, but... Oh, so
2: it's the two sausage patties are one and two, and then the triple is the bacon. Sure. All right, man.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I had, I had the biscuit version, so I can't really tell you, because yours probably had a thousand more calories than mine did.
2: Yeah, well, I mean especially since it included a McRib.
3: I also had the biscuit <laughs> one, and it was fine. I'd eat it again, I am I guess, but it wasn't yeah. spectacular. It was fine.
2: <laughs> You'd eat it again? Would you actually go out and purchase it again?
3: I guess I wouldn't go out of my way for it, but I'd eat it again if someone gave it to me, sure.
2: Okay, that's fair. That's fair.
3: <laughs> there were some folks that it took them down for the rest of the day. Jerry
2: Yang. Poor Jerry. Ate one One triple stack and was just <laughs> incapable of eating for the rest of the day. He had three Pringles before bed. That was his diet for the day. was one triple stack and three Pringles.
1: And I feel like those three Pringles came at around three in the morning. Yeah.
2: So technically, that was was breakfast.
1: Because I remember those Pringles. And that's pretty much like 30 minutes before we called Jeff. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I hope that we get a written report of the triple stack from Jerry Yang, because I'd like to read his fully organized thoughts on it.
2: Jerry Yang's food reports on fast food are excellent yes we should make those public somehow
3: (laughs) i felt bad for jerry too because some of us ended up like catching a ride to go to starlight lounge for pierogies and some of us ended up catching a ride to go to max's allegheny's tavern for some german food and jerry just opted to stay at the airbnb by himself because that triple stack did a number on him
2: yeah i mean he wasn't (laughs) interested in more food he he just wanted to recover from breakfast but yeah, so uh, let's see. How many people did we have at Max's Allegheny Tavern? Because that's where I went. Seven, I believe. Yeah, I, I think it was a total of seven. But I, I thought that food was pretty good. That was recommended by uh, your friend, uh, Oliver. Well, he's friend and teammate of Team Sirius, Oliver.
3: Yeah, it was pretty good. It was my first foray into German food, but I had the bratwurst, the wienerschnitzel, the pork roast, and the pretzel, and the sauerkraut. And yeah, overall, it was pretty good. Oh, also the nachos, because, you know, yeah, those you are totally had,
2: German. You had, like, the sampler platter. Yeah. Those Bavarian nachos were a, a questionable addition to a German menu. <laughs> but, yeah, I had the hassenpfeffer, which is broiled rabbit with uh, – it had a um, a wine gravy on it, and then also the red cabbage and spätzle, and that stuff was solid. Like, that was some of the best German food I've had, and I guess most of my experience comes from – Schmidt's in Columbus, which yeah, I think Max's is probably better than Schmidt.
3: Yeah, it's within walking distance too from the Elks Lodge and Old School. So I think if the Elks Lodge has Old School again next year, that might be the play that is to go back to Max's Allegheny Tavern.
2: Oh yeah, for sure. I would definitely do that. It It was a longish walk from the convention center that we took late enough at night that it got a little weird at times, but it was fine. Those
1: are the best walks. Yeah,
2: no, it was fine. They had a pretty good beer selection and Oliver said that he'd been going there with his family since he was a kid, which I mean is a good recommendation in my book.
1: Mm -hmm. And I feel like I was on the wrong path because I went to Starlight and it was a pretty far Uber away. The bar was great. Like if I'm looking to hang out at a bar for several hours and have like 11 iron cities, (laughs) this is exactly where I want to go. (laughs) But like the, the waitress was like really surly old lady and it's just fine. Like I don't care, but I don't know. Like, I don't think the pierogies were amazing.
2: Oh, they were They were recommended for their pierogies. Did we steer people wrong?
1: Uh, well, they did have Guy Fieri on the menu, which is like kind of a takeaway. Yeah, that's a
2: downer. Sorry.
1: <laughs> but I will say on the pierogi train, Cinderland, their pierogies were awesome. Hot. They have pierogies that are just like different every day. Whatever they feel like making, nice. that's within their pierogies. And they were great. They also had a scotch egg. That was very well done. It's like a pretty complicated thing to cook. Yeah, those are, those are hard. That was delicious. I had the roulettes. I had the dates. I ate my way through most of their menu. They made beer. The beer was good. That was probably the best thing I ate all so weekend. So that was Cinderland? Cinderland's Beer Co. Oh, man. I wish I'd heard about that place. Yeah, right? The scotch egg was insane. So what's
2: the best pierogi then? I mean, obviously, flavor combinations make a big difference. How How big were the pierogies at uh, Cinderland?
1: So they had three pierogies on the plate for $11, uh-huh. and they were, like, they're not enormous, but they're, like, big enough that you can get three substantial bites out of each pierogi, which I think is fair size. Okay, sure, sure. The pierogies that they had when we were there were, like, eggplant, cherry tomatoes, feta, creme fraiche. That's one pierogi? Yeah, like that's everything in the pierogi is that. Mm. Yeah. And there's three of those for eleven dollars. Yeah, no, that sounds all right.
2: So you it wasn't like you got three different kinds, you got one kind, and that was eggplant and cherry tomato, creme fraîche, feta. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. I
1: mean the full story is like I was walking back into the convention center. I ran into an old school player that I met on the plane from Denver to Pittsburgh. He was renting bikes to ride around the city. I conned him into letting me join him. We rode a 12 mile loop outside of Pittsburgh and we ended up on the other side of the river. And he's like, Hey, I looked up this place on my phone. It looks good. Let's go here and have a beer. So that was Cinderlands and we had a beer, we ate some food. And I was like, wow, this is really good. And we went back to the convention center and I met up with the team serious folks. And I'm like, we should probably just go back here for dinner nice. And that's what we nice. did. Man,
2: sounds like a good choice.
1: I'd say the other solid food choice, pretty close to the convention center, maybe like a block and a half away, was Bay Bay's Kitchen. Yeah, I heard you guys talking about that place too. Yeah, it's like a Korean place, which is interesting because the menu looks kind of interesting enough. So like, I I actually didn't know about the restaurant at all. I went to the convention center very early on Friday morning uh, when vintage was happening because I had flown in from Denver, so I was still on mountain time and like, you know, 5 AM in Pittsburgh was like 7 AM for me. And I was like ready yeah. to go or or whatever. Like I was up really early and just walking around town. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna get breakfast by the convention center and I found nothing. Yeah. And I walked by the place that was closed and I'm like, oh, whatever this is, it looks pretty good. And I looked it up and it was this Bay's kitchen place. I didn't know anything about it. It just looked good. I'm like, I'm gonna go here. And I conned Jerry into going with me. <laughs> because you just wanted to be disappointed. You keep
2: saying you conned people into going places with you, and I'm pretty sure they would have just gone, right? Like, random Bonterally. old school player, Jerry, like, they're they're just totally down for hanging out and, like, going to get food and drinks, right?
1: Yeah, that's probably true. I'm just, like, giving the benefit of the doubt to them if they're just like, oh, this Fair. S- sucked. <laughs> but anyway, like, to so the menu, if you look it up online, it looks like it's going to be bowls and nothing but bowls of, like, Rice noodle salad. What kind of meat do you want? What kind of vegetables do you want? But like they had a bunch of stuff that was specials. They had like Korean wings. Like the chicken wings were awesome. They had homemade dumplings. I got cheese wontons because you know, like I'm always going to order that. I think Jerry was embarrassed by that cheese.
2: You got cheese wontons in front of Jerry? (laughs)
1: Yeah, sure did.
2: Oh, (laughs) jeez.
1: One time I got Jerry to order uh, General Sauce chicken for me. (laughs) <laughs> and i can imagine him just trying to
2: mumble that to the server <laughs> I, general- I only did it so i could tell the story general Chicken. nice what general says chicken
1: but but yeah i think those those were probably the two uh winning meals for me
2: i had a pretty good uh experience dining with jerry yang the monday uh, after eternal weekend we went to los Quachos in columbus because i was hyping him up on the fact that there had been a online article that called their al pastor the third best in the united states which seems unbelievable because it's in columbus right like i don't know why it would be so good in columbus i think we've talked about this restaurant on the podcast before but anyway uh we went there for lunch and jerry was impressed i think i convinced Hmm. him that the Los Squatches Al Pastor is some of the best in the country. Wow. I mean, he even admitted it. Jerry's a hard man to impress. He is, though. Like
1: That's an understatement. Yeah, <laughs> like I always
2: feel embarrassed to like, I'm going to recommend a restaurant to you and I know you're just not going to like it. I'm sorry, Jerry, but <laughs> this is my recommendation. But anyway, yeah, Los Squatches was a hit. And actually, we went to Buckeye Fa in columbus and he also thought that was pretty good Hmm. well at least he didn't think it was bad i think there's a difference yeah for sure with jerry (laughs) yeah actually i was i was pretty pleased with the food that we found in pittsburgh the weird thing was that the breakfast place recommended by around the corner from our airbnb used ground bacon on the (laughs) breakfast sandwiches which i just didn't understand Hmm. i mean they were still good i still ate them it was just weird
3: that's not like ground chocolate is it
2: no i (laughs) chocolate from the ground yeah i mean as far as i know they didn't get it off the ground it was just in small pieces it was like bacon bits that had been heated up and put on a sandwich oh okay yeah and i didn't get high afterwards
3: (laughs) uh ground chocolate
1: did you throw up on anyone at the bar
2: no no i didn't (laughs) I feel like at some point we either have to cut this
0: bit or explain this story. <laughs> <Inside> story. <laughs> yeah. like I think we just explained this story. It's really <laughs> weird. <laughs> it's like this really long inside. Yeah, joke. Yeah, And I, I don't want people to think it was me who ate the ground chocolate. I mean, like, okay. So we, we can, we can not edit any of this
1: because like, why would we edit it? That's no fun. Right. Like, I can give you the 90-second version of the story if you want. Go ahead. I went to a bar in Denver with some members of Team Sirius. I have a history of eating food off the ground. I was standing next to a member of Team Sirius, and I picked up a chocolate bar off the ground. I smelled it. It smelled totally normal. I took a little bite of it. It tasted totally normal. And I'm like, okay, I wonder if there's weed in this. I'm going to take it to Jerry Yang because Jerry Yang can taste anything. So I had Jerry take a little piece of it. And he's like, nope, there's no weed in here. And we proceeded to eat the entire thing. I think I had five pieces of it. Some other members <laughs> had several pieces of it. We continue on our tour of having beers. And then we went to dinner and I was sitting at dinner and all of a sudden everything slowed down for me. And I was like, oh, there was weed in that chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, that was, that's pretty much
2: the story right there so don't eat chocolate you find on the ground yeah or do have an adventure do what you like
1: yeah you know like are you gonna not do that like never have the story in your life come on
2: right i mean i expect that most people wouldn't eat chocolate off the ground in the first place but you know you never know you never know what could happen wasn't it
3: already missing a piece and the label was blank (laughs) like This is true. It was missing a piece and the packaging was blank.
0: Yeah. Seems perfectly legit. Yeah.
2: I
1: mean, sometimes people drop good chocolate, right? Yeah. It could have just been an accident. It was white chocolate. It had fresh blueberries. Like, I mean, this was like no joke.
0: (laughs) I mean, I'm sure that the person who left that was bummed that they left their obviously really good quality weed chocolate somewhere. Yeah. we
1: We probably ate $30 worth of chocolate.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And that's their fault for leaving it there. Yeah, you capitalized on that one. So did several other people. (laughs) I do feel bad about accidentally drugging a bunch of my friends.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. They're hanging out with you. They're living for adventure,
0: too. That's just... That's how it goes when you... But to
1: be fair, I drugged myself the worst.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Were you okay after that, or did you end up like, you know...
1: I mean, like, I didn't have any violent violent like expulsions of fluid from my body but i did like end up playing computer games for like the next seven hours and like trying to sleep on a floor for the next eight
2: nice sounds pretty great
1: yeah i mean like i mean it wasn't ideal for me because like that's not something that i willingly do and enjoy but it's like i like chocolate and you know i just trick myself
2: (laughs) fair enough well that's the ground chocolate story someday we'll find out about the toilet paper mitten and then We'll never have to do another podcast again. (laughs) (laughs) I think we can probably wrap this up. Nam, I have I have one last question. What do you think about the vintage metagame right now?
3: It's in a weird state where it's kind of fun, but there are just certain archetypes like kind of at the top of the food chain. So it's in like Mm -hmm. this weird maybe triangle or so where you need to be able to prepare be prepared for like tier one and tier two and like tiers like 2.5 1.5 and so but i mean i don't think it's in the best state right now but i don't think it's in a bad state and i can't really put a finger on where it should be but i guess based on the numbers like hopefully wizards will determine what that'll be like i hear some people saying like Spear of Resistance needs to be restricted. Paradoxical Outcome needs to be restricted. Mental Misstep needs to be restricted. Survival needs to be restricted, although that's more reason. But I guess we'll see. I guess we'll see survival. what we decide. It's the new hotness, so it needs to be restricted, right? It is
2: the new hotness. I did see uh, Eternal Central put up their metagame report, and Survival has a pretty impressive win percentage against the rest of the field. Is that just because it's new
0: and people don't know how to deal know. with it? I think so. But That
1: certainly I, could be the case, for sure. Yeah. Because that was a lot of our testing is like, uh, what are the best cards here?
2: Yeah, well, it's it's a weird deck to play against because, I mean, a lot of its hands are like kind of a big dredge deck and some of its hands are like kind of a mediocre control deck and some of them are in between, which is like, I don't know how you deal with that. I actually, Jerry and I were talking about this, Jeff, that it very much seems like the actual iteration of Jeff Moe's Dredge circa
0: two thousand six. Sounds horrifying. So are you back in or what, Jeff? Uh I'm uh can't make any promises there. All you gotta do is buy survivals.
1: <laughs> All you gotta do is
0: proxy survivals.
2: Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You can you can play it at Steve's house. We're gonna do T S I Steve's house.
1: Sounds like he's in. We'll see.
2: Yeah he's in. Don't worry. <laughs>
1: Definitely. Nam, are you going to play at the TSI in December?
3: Yeah, I'm signed up. I don't know what I'll play, but either way, it's going to be a good time. Always a good time with at TSI's with friends. Nice, yeah.
0: It's happened again. You've wasted another perfectly good hour listening to Serious Vintage. I'm Jeff Mose. I'm Nat Mose. I'm Josh Chappell.
3: And I'm Nam Tran.
0: And we hope you'll join us next time for more Serious Vintage. A little chip. Too- New messages.
1: Jimmy lost the winner.
2: To save this message, press nine.